Would you take a Bible with me this morning? Turn again to the Gospel of Matthew. We are in Matthew for a few more weeks. Uh, we only have about 40 or so days before we get to the Advent season. Uh, but until then, we will finish off uh, this time in the Gospel of Matthew. We are in Matthew, the 22nd chapter this morning. The text begins at verse 15. Anytime we come to this text, I always think the lectionary should put it in the first part of April and not in October. Um, but I think as we'll see today, it may be the right text for us in just the right time. And so if you're able this morning and present with us, if you would stand in honor of the Lord's word as we read together Matthew 22, beginning at verse 15. When the Pharisees met together to find a way to trap Jesus, the then the Pharisees met together to find a way to trap Jesus in his words. They sent their disciples, and this is a very important part, along with the supporters of Herod, to him. Teacher, they said, we know that you are genuine and that you teach God's way as it really is. We know that you're not swayed by people's opinions because you don't show favoritism. So tell us what you think. Does the law allow people to pay taxes to Caesar or not? <laughs> Knowing their evil motives, Jesus replied, Oh, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used to pay the tax. And they brought him a denarian, whose image and inscription is this, he said. Caesar's, they replied. Then he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to God what belongs to God. When they heard this, they were astonished, and they departed. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Over the last few weeks, we have been in... Um, Matthew 21 and 22, and the lectionary has kind of been following text by text. In Matthew 21, Jesus takes his disciples and these crowds who have been with him in the mountains, ready for a revolution, and they head down to Jerusalem. And sure enough, this revolution gets off to a kind of good start as Jesus overthrows the temple and the money changers in the temple, curses the fig tree, and then begins to respond to the questions like, what, who do you think that you are? What kind of authority do you have to come in here and turn over the tables and reestablish your presence here or establish your presence here in the temple? To which the last three weeks we've looked at three what we call parables, but they're really analogies because they weren't confusing at all. They were understood. So three weeks ago, Jesus says, well, there were, there's a man who has two sons um, and he wants them to work. And he says, hey, go work for me. And one son says no, but then he changes his mind and goes and works. And the other one says, oh, yeah, I'll work, but had no intention of ever going. Which one did what the father wanted, Jesus asked. And they say, well, obviously the son who ended up working. And then we get this hard word, oh, see? The tax collectors and prostitutes, they are getting into the new creation, into the kingdom ahead of you. And two weeks ago, um, there's a vineyard owner who hires folks to come and be tenant farmers in the vineyard. 
under this condition that they operate the way the vineyard owner would want them to operate and give back to the vineyard owner what is due to the vineyard owner. But they decide, no, we want to keep it all for ourselves. And so no matter how many messengers the vineyard owner sends, they turn them away, oftentimes beat them, misuse them. And so finally, the vineyard owner says, I'll send my son, they'll respect him. And the, vineyard, the tenants in the vineyard come up with the dumbest idea ever. Oh, we'll just kill the son and maybe then the vineyard will be ours. What will the vineyard owner do? He will take them out and he'll find other tenant farmers to care for his vineyard. Last week, there's a big party being thrown. The king throws a big wedding feast and invites all the people who are on the appropriate list to be invited, but they all reject not just the first messenger, but even the second one. And they're, again, misuse and kill and persecute messengers. So all of the folks on the margins, all the folks who never expected to be invited, all of them get in. And it's this wonderful, again, this story that they understand well. Those who have been put in charge of being leaders in the kingdom are failing. And all these others, these folks that Jesus has brought with them into Jerusalem, this is becoming theirs. Now there's a flip in the text, but you, you have to, if you're going to come, even if you're a late guest, you have to come ready to be transformed by the feast. So they've had it at this point. The leaders of the temple, the Pharisees, the others, they are, they've had it. And so as I often say to students in, in ministry classes, listen, I just have a warning for you. As you move into those roles where you teach regularly or where you get a chance to preach on a regular basis, I don't know how to say this to you other than people are going to leave. Some people are going to come, thanks be to God. But some folks are going to leave. And they're going to leave because they don't like the theology that you're talking about. It doesn't fit with their own perspectives. And, and it's just going to be a reality. And so, so <laughs> deal with it. Let it go, let it go, let it go. I mean, learn to, to deal with that. And that's going to happen. And so you'll have people leave over your theology. But look me in the eye. They're going to fire you over your politics. And so here's what they know. All right. This whole theology thing hasn't been working very well. Let's get him to talk about politics. And so they come ready to get rid of this new young prophet. And so they come with this amazing political question. Are you ready? And they come with a group that shows up one time in Matthew, and this is it. A group that in the Common English Bible are called the supporters of Herod. In other texts are called the Herodians. They have identified themselves with Herod. Now, to understand this text, the Herodians are what I would call the most politically conservative of the first century Jewish crowd. In this sense, they've learned to be okay with the relationship between Judaism and Rome. And more than they've learned to be okay with it, they've learned that if you work the system well... You can actually profit from it, and you actually can gain security and prestige by playing the system. And so they're conservative because they want the current situation conserved. Uh, they like what's happening. Now, the reason they're connected with Herod, now hang with me, this is the important part. There are two Herods that show up in the book of Matthew. The first that shows up is a guy named Herod the Great. You can Google him. 
Uh, he has a really good wiki page. Um, Herod the Great. And you don't get a title like the Great on accident. Herod was raised Jewish, but then the Roman authorities saw in Herod the opportunity to have a kind of puppet king over the Judean territory. And here's essentially the deal. Herod, if you will keep peace with your people, if you will keep them in control, we will, we will ingratiate you with all sorts of wealth and security and prosperity. We will work together. But here's the deal. You've got to keep the people under control. Herod, more than just keep the people under control, thought, here's how to do that. Let's make sure they get a lot from us. And so Herod decided to become a builder. In fact, if you ever get a chance to go to the Holy Land, you can go to kind of places that Herod built. Beautiful places along the sea. But most importantly, Herod decided, we're going to flip the temple. He had big HGTV watcher. He is going to flip this temple. And so he invites folks in, and he has the temple that had been constructed by Ezra and Nehemiah, but was kind of, eh, all right. He decided to have all the best craftsmen come in, and they expanded the temple, and they made it into something really spectacular. So we think of Herod as great because he's done all of these wonderful things for the Jewish people, and he's keeping peace with Rome. You with me? Now, here's how Matthew narrates Herod. In about 40 or so days, when we get to the Advent season, we will encounter the opening of Matthew's gospel, which is a birth story about how a star rises to indicate that a new leader is coming. And we have magi from the east bringing gifts, coming to see who this new king is, and they encounter Herod the Great. And when they encounter Herod, he's not so great. He's actually quite paranoid that someone might usurp his power, might, might erode the status that he has built with the nation. And so rather than being great, Matthew narrates him this way, as paranoid and as fearful as Pharaoh and as violent as him. So that the one who the Herodians think of as the great, Matthew thinks of as somebody who is so afraid of losing power that he is willing to try to kill, like Pharaoh, Jewish babies. Are you with me? Now Herod the Great dies. And we have a second Herod in the Gospel of Matthew, his son, Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas, you can Google him too. His wiki page is there, but it's not quite as good as the great. He did some good stuff. Tried to carry forward some of the building projects that, his, that the great had started. He, he did something that's important to this text. He knew how offended the Jewish people were by having to carry around images of other kinds of entities and gods and empires. And so he had Jewish coinage made that had only Jewish images on it, but not of people. But so that the Jewish people could carry around in their pockets coins that did not have the imprint of empire things on it. Are you with me? Now, here's part of this whole text. 
because the tax on the temple had to be paid in Roman coinage, the people had to come with their Jewish coinage and have it transferred into Roman coinage. So whenever you go traveling, so if you go south and you have your U.S. dollars and you have to change them into pesos, or you go north and you have your U.S. dollars and you have to change them into Canadian dollars, you know what happens, right? You go to the little booth and you look at the exchange rate and you say, here's my U.S. money, and then you get back what you're supposed to get in exchange rate, but you always notice there's a little bit short here. Hmm, how did that happen? Well, because <laughs> there's a service fee, right, for exchanging the money. And so the temple had figured this out. People had to come, and they had to pay the tax, and so why not change their money from Jewish money into Roman money, and we can skim a little bit off the top. These are ways for us to participate and get wealthy. So when Jesus overturns the money changers temp, uh, tables, he's overturning a system that has continued to oppress the poor. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But Herod Antipas also shows up in Matthew later in the crucifixion story. But he also shows up in Matthew 14. Do you remember him? He, um, he's divorced, and his second marriage isn't all that hot. Um, in fact, it's kind of questionable, because he's ended up marrying a brother's wife. Um, and here's this person who's supposed to kind of embody Jewish morals, who doesn't really. And so John the Baptist speaks out against Herod. Jesus calls him a fox, by the way. Um, and not in a good way, not in like a 70s, oh, he's a fox, uh, but in a, he's sneaky, he's a fox um, kind of way. And so John speaks out against the immorality of this Herod, and what happens to John? He gets beheaded. So the Herodians, who want everything to stay the same, come with the Pharisees, the Pharisees bring them along. And they ask Jesus what seems like a kind of innocuous question, but is really politically charged. Is it lawful to pay taxes? Now, here is why this is such a tricky dilemma. Because if Jesus says, yes, of course, you should pay your taxes, then all of these people who have just followed him throughout Galilee, who are convinced that there is this revolutionary leader who understands that the system is built against us. And even the religious system that has, has drawn its tie to the political system, it misuses us. And here is a leader who understands that, who knows us, who's going to lead us forward. It's time for a change. Jesus is leading the progressives into Jerusalem. And if Jesus says, yes, you should pay your taxes, they're all going to go, great. Oh, see? It doesn't matter who you elect, they always end up in the swamp. Doesn't matter. They all turn into politicians once they get to Jerusalem. And he will lose the favor that he has with the crowds. But if he says, of course, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, got him. Because now the Herodians right there connected to the state will say, ha, 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 I knew he was a zealot. He tried to hide it, but he is a zealot. And you know what we do with zealots who get people not to pay taxes and rile them up and get them all violent? We crucify them. Yay! Woo! So Jesus is in a bind. 
And so he asked, show me a coin. Some scholars think this is actually quite subversive itself, that Jesus doesn't have one. Um, well, those he's speaking to are able to have one. So in some ways, they're asking a question about purity when their pockets are full of the empire. But he takes the coin and he asks this question, whose image is on this coin? It's an easy answer. In fact, part of the problem was that coin had not only Caesar's image on it, but on one side, it proclaimed Caesar as Lord, son of God. And on the other side, it proclaimed him high priest of the empire. Hugely offensive. For we, God's people, only trust in God. We know he is not the son of God, nor is he the high priest of us. And so he asks, whose image is on this? It's Caesar's. Then he says, profoundly, so then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. Now some throughout Christian history have read this as though Jesus is saying, see, there's two spheres in life, at least two. There's kind of the political sphere and then there's the kind of God sphere. And so Jesus is saying, of course, like do that, but of course do this. And I had this feeling that's the way most of us kind of are wired also. So that I would say it this way. On Sundays, we can say amen to some really kind of radical theology. We can be invited to be these unique people of God. But as a pastor, I've said this to you before, it feels like as we walk out of the building, it's as though somebody has written above the door. Well, that's great, pastor. But now as we go to the real world. And so we have a Sunday faith, but we have a Monday through Saturday reality of life. And some think this text is Jesus saying, well, yeah, like, pay your taxes, but you have God stuff too. But that view is so inconsistent with anything else Jesus would have ever said. But it also misses what is likely the radicalness of this text. Jesus is saying, listen, whose image is on this, Caesar? But here's the question then, whose image is on you? And you don't have to be a super good Hebrew Bible scholar, because you're barely into Genesis, and we have this teaching that you and I, humankind, are made in such a way that we are to be the image of God, that the imprint of God is upon us. Now, the story goes, that has been broken and marred, but when that is reestablished, we are called then to be the image, the reflection, the mirror of God in the world. He has claimed all of us, Nazarene types, sanctification. We, all of life has been claimed by God. And so it all belongs to him. And that's why in what's called the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, when God says, listen, I brought you out of the land of slavery, out of the house of bondage, I am your God. First, no other gods before me. But second, don't make any graven images. And as we've talked about before, it's not because just because spirit can't be formed in matter or because God, every time we do something of God, he goes, oh, you never get my ears right. But it's because we cannot make images of our God if God is already making his image in us. And so God is forming his image in us, and that's why the third command is so important. And now we're sent into the world to be reflections of who God is, bearing his name in the world, so you had better bear it rightly. Do not go into the world proclaiming to be God's child, reflecting his image into the world, but then misuse God's name. It's very important. And so Jesus is saying, listen, 
Caesar can claim dominion over a few things. And if you want to give that back to him, give it back to him. But give to God what is God's. (laughs) Here's the part of the story I love. And that is, I'm convinced that they're all kind of shocked into silence. Like, wow, that didn't go well. And as they walk away, about half a block away, they realize, wait a minute, he didn't answer the question. And one of them might say, well, yeah, he did. He said, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. And the other would say, well, yeah. But he also said, give back to God what is God's. God has everything. So are we supposed to give it or keep it? Like, what are we supposed to do with it? They went back to find him, but he had gone off the grid. Um, Like, is he supposed, are are we supposed to do this or not? This week, as I was thinking about the sermon, I, I had a couple of versions in my head that would have been really good and might have even gone viral. Um, especially to take on this text like 16 days before a national election. I just got fired up and thought, oh, that would be, oh, let's do, no, that would be fun. Let's do that. But I'm going to let you do that on your own. I'm just too tired. Um, but I do want to say just two or three things in this moment about this text and how I think it ought to speak to us. That what Jesus is saying to us is that you and I who call Christ Lord, there is an identity that has marked us that is transcendent and transcends all other commitments, connections, identities that we have. It doesn't eliminate them, but it transcends them. Uh, I've seen some stuff uh, about the political moment where sometimes, and I think sometimes I'm heard this way too, where I'll say the problem, especially in the American political system where you just have two options, maybe a third if you're independent. But the problem is that Jesus doesn't fit neatly into either of them or any of them. And I think sometimes that's heard then that Jesus is in the center Like, Jesus is like the groovy middle. And this is the problem with Jesus. He's just centrist on everything, right? And I I would want to say, no. The reason it's so difficult to kind of fit faithful Christianity into kind of two options is that Jesus, the gospel actually transcends them. It doesn't fit easily because it's calling us Not out of them, but it's calling us to a kind of identity to where we have been marked by a kind of faithfulness to Christ and a kind of identity to a kingdom, a kind of citizenship in a new creation that doesn't get us out of the challenges that we face, nor does it get us out of the difficulties of making decisions, but it invites us to a place of transcendent connection with God and an invitation to be His image in the world as challenging and as difficult as that is. But the problem is we can't get out of the world, so we're in it. And while we're in it, trying to live this faithful identity, there are all these other kinds of identities that are trying to mark us. So hang with me for just a minute. There's a a thread that I think runs throughout the Scripture, and and it starts, this will shock you, back in Exodus. And we've talked about it before, but it's this wonderful moment where the last plague is happening, the death angel is coming. 
And God says to the people, here's what I want you to do. I want you to have, a, I want you to have dinner. You're going to need the energy. Have dinner. And I want you to eat it strangely. I want you to have your shoes on, and I want you to have a staff in your hand. I want you to be ready to go. It's fat, the original fast food. I want you to eat it fast. But it's going to be a lamb, and what I want you to do is slaughter it. But here's the weird part of the story. I want you to cook it, but first, I want you to go out and, and paint the doorpost of your house with the blood of the lamb. It's kind of strange, isn't it? But I think the, the strangeness of the text is this. In this last play, God is asking a people to say, who do you identify with? Do you identify with Pharaoh and all his power and wealth? And are you sure that the gods are on Pharaoh's side? Or are you willing to trust your future in the vulnerability of the one who's represented at the center of the table in the Lamb? And if you're willing to risk your whole life and future and welfare there, then mark your life with the Lamb. You with me? And those who mark themselves in that way are saved, are redeemed, are, are brought out. Maybe the most important text in the Torah is Deuteronomy 6.4, a text in Hebrew called the Shema, which means to hear. You may know it. It goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Re remember this text, by the way, because it shows up in next week's text. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Keep these words I'm commanding you today. Now, here's the strange part. Bind them or write them on your head and on your hand. Put them on your doorpost and your gate. Talk about them when you rise up and when you lie down. Talk about them with your children, etc. This is why in many Jewish homes, there's that little box called a mezuzah that has the words of the Torah rolled up and in it. So that when you leave, you touch it, you kiss it, you do something that reminds you, oh yes, as I go into the world, there are all these identities that are trying to capture me. But hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God exclusively with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we have to remind ourselves all the time because there are these identities that are trying to capture us, trying to, to squeeze us, to use Paul's language, squeeze us into its mold, mark us. Now, if we jump from Deuteronomy all the way to the end, in Revelation 13, it's a crazy chapter in Revelation. It's a revelation where the empire is, of Rome is symbolized by all these beasts. My favorite beast, by the way, in Revelation 13 is one that looks like the lamb but speaks like the dragon. That's for another day. But there's all these beasts. But it's in Revelation 13 where we get the idea of the mark of the beast. So some of you, if you were raised like me going to camp, um, usually to get us to stop holding hands before the end of the week or to finally get us serious about God, they would show us kind of scary movies that sometimes included the Mark of the Beast. And so I think as a kid, I thought what the Mark of the Beast was, thanks to a few books, is that someday somebody's going to try to get me to have a barcode on my head or my hand. And that then when I go to Albertsons and I go through the self-check section, I get everything in the bags and then I got to do this. <laughs> right? Now, I could be wrong. I'm not, but I could be wrong. And if they ever want to give you a barcode, don't get one. But I think what Revelation 13 is trying to get us to see is actually more insidious than just the government trying to put a barcode on your head. 
It is the idea that we live in a time that is trying to mark us, all of these kinds of beasts that are trying to make that our sole identity so that when you look at us, it's, the, it's all of these beasts that radiate from us. And the reason why I think that's so important is in chapter 14, the very first verse, there's a whole other group of people who, are, who have the lamb's name written on their head and on their hand. So that the contrast is this. It is this question. Whose identity has captured you? Who are you ultimately marked by? And Jesus is saying, don't be marked by Caesar. Caesar's temporary. Give temporary stuff to temporary powers. But give to God what is God's. And that's everything. Now here's the deal. If we learn to live that way, answers then become very difficult. I'll give you just two or three quick examples. I have folks every once in a while who will say to me, Pastor, what do I do? I, I feel like the scripture has invited me to use the gifts that God has given to me and to be the image of God and to be creative and be co-creative with God and to work and to be diligent. And as I have done that, it feels like God has blessed that. And not just blessed that in a way that has been blessing to others, but has blessed that in a way that has also come back in blessing to me. And so I feel like God has really blessed this business or this, this industry, this, this work. But then I come to text like the rich young man, where he says, what do I have to do to get in to have this new creation life? And Jesus says, sell everything. So what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to keep working in ways that lead to blessing, or am I supposed to give everything up? To which I think the scriptural answer is, yes. You belong to God. And there are not easy answers to this question, but here's the deal. If you sense that that prosperity and that life of abundance has come to claim you and mark who you are, then you had better listen to the words of Jesus and allow him to claim you first. Oftentimes, as I think about the already and not yet kingdom, many of you have asked me this question. There are times when I'll preach that in such a way that I am convinced the kingdom of God is already here. Therefore, we are to take up the cross and be makers of peace in the world, leading to vulnerability and sometimes even a willingness to die and not kill. And I believe that wholeheartedly and the scripture leans towards that. But then there are other texts in scripture that worry about the vulnerability of the marginalized and those folks for whom evil just keeps, keeps sweeping over them. And what are we to do there? Are we to stand with and protect the little ones? Yes. So how are we to live with regards to that in the world? This one I get in trouble for too. Does the scripture invite us to be good citizens? Absolutely. Work for the good of the Babylon that you live in. Do it. Love it. Work for it. Does the scripture warn 
that temporary empires can become idols to us? Yes! And am I one who wants to lead us in ways that protects us from practices that turn what is good into something that is broken? Yes! Are you with me? And so oftentimes, I feel like we, you should walk away and be about half a block from church, and, and you should say, are, so are we supposed to sell everything or not? How should we, what kind of citizens are we supposed to be? What role should protection and dependence upon sources of violence be in our, like, I think you should get away and go, I'm not sure he answered that question. It's why, as I've been asked a few times over the last few weeks, when people have said, Pastor, I know you're not going to, but like, seriously, who should we vote for? And I'm here to tell you, I'm not going to tell you. And not just because I'm a chicken. (laughs) And not just because most of the time when you're asking me, you're pulling a Herodian. So if I answer one way, they'll go, ah, knew it. (laughs) Sneaky liberal. If I answer another way, all those folks who feel like they finally found a space where they belong, will say, ah, oh, disappointed again. And so I, I hope you go home and say, <laughs> home and say, did he tell us anything about what we're supposed to do in 16 days? And the answer to that is no. But not because it's not important. It is. But the word is this, you belong to God. I got to land this plane. My favorite quote um, about this text comes from uh, the ethicist Stanley Harwas. He says, for many people, this account of Jesus' claim that we are to give to the emperor what is the emperor's and to God what is God's creates an insoluble problem because they do not see how followers of Jesus can then live in the world as we know it. But to recognize that we have an insoluble problem is to begin to follow Jesus. Jesus' response to the Pharisees and Herodians does create an insoluble problem but that is what it is meant to do. Here's the key line. You know you have a problem, at least if you are a disciple of Jesus, when you do not have a problem. Let me say that one more time. You know you have a problem, at least if you are a disciple of Jesus, when you do not have a problem. And so if I could cause just one little bit of trouble before we leave today as we wrestle with these very serious questions about lots of things going on in our world. I'm less bothered and concerned about you if you are struggling to try to figure out what does it mean to live faithfully having been claimed by God at the core of all that I am. I'm less concerned about that than if you are absolutely certain (laughs) that this other identity that has claimed you must certainly be the identity of God also. And so as we work and figure out how to not be marked by the idol of wealth, 
as we learn to be good citizens, but not be marked with the idol of nation. As we learn to know how to protect the vulnerable without making our ultimate dependence on chariots and horses. And as we learn how to navigate a very divided political world, knowing that the first claim upon our life is Christ, is <laughs> an invitation to a wonderful problem, to know how to reflect his image in the world. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but you belong to God. God, help us today. Um, help us in this, uh, this often divided time to be instruments of peace. Uh, may we know um, in our heart of hearts that we belong to you. And I, I pray... Um, I pray for some brothers and sisters here and, and connected online with us. Um, it is easy for all sorts of identities to claim us. Um, I pray that you would help us to know how to navigate faithfully all of the ways that, that the world wants to squeeze us into its mold. And again, we... We can't get out of it. And so we ask you to give us wisdom to not be of it. But may we know in our heart of hearts that we are yours. And as we pursue that together, then give us peace and grace with each other to know how to to give space and encouragement and accountability to each other as we navigate those challenges in life. And I do pray a blessing upon these next few weeks. Um, I do pray, God, uh, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth, even in this space that we care so much about as it is in heaven. And may that be the pursuit of our heart. Pray for families uh, who are oftentimes divided over some of these issues, for communities that are divided. And they're divided because many of these questions are very important. But help us, oh God, to know that we are citizens of a new creation. And may our lives reflect that. May we be marked by the Lamb through and through. And may we, like the city that is to come, may everything about us reflect the beauty of the Lion who is the Lamb. And so bless us. Make us that people, we pray. Don't give up on us. Give us your spirit. Help us to discern the day. For we pray this in Jesus' name.